Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at the history of your people, we see that again and again they turn from you, but you reach out in grace to them. Lord, as we look at our own life and our own personal history, we see that same pattern repeated, that we turn from you, but in your grace and forgiveness, you reach out to us. Father, help us as you reach out today to be ready to respond again to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Dr. Harry Fosdick was a well-known American preacher during the, the first part of the the 20th century. At his retirement social in in 1946, he made the comment that he'd been puzzled all of his life by the fact that on the whole, women had not accomplished as much in public life as men. For obviously, he said, the brains of women are as good and perhaps better than the brains of men. Yet the sober truth is, that there have been relatively few women on the list of outstanding composers, artists, philosophers, theologians, scientists, and statesmen. But at last, said Dr. Fosdick, I know the answer. No woman ever had a wife. (laughs) Oh, for those simple days. Yeah. But you see, I share that with you this morning because... The passage we're looking at today, while not perhaps as sensational as the one we looked at last time we were in Judges, although when I think about it, it maybe is, but the last time it was the, the gruesome assassination of Eglon, remember, stabbed to death with the sword disappearing into his belly. Yet, this passage, in, in its own way, in a different way, is, is really equally surprising because in a very straightforward, in a very understated way, It brings us face to face here with one of the most contentious issues in church life, the the role of women, particularly with regard to leadership in the church. For of the, the two testaments, the Old Testament is generally felt by many to be the more male dominated of the two, with Jesus in the New Testament being much more sympathetic, it's felt, to the the role, the place, the function of women. And so the position then that we find Deborah in here rather sticks out in the Old Testament. And and the thing is that there's not a word of of explanation or or reason given for this. It's very much seemingly just taken for granted. Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning discussing Deborah the woman. I much more want, want to look with you at Deborah the person, the person used by God and what made her usable. By God, But let me just kind of make things clear at the beginning. I'll maybe expand on this at some point later on when it becomes a live issue here in Scotland, which it usually does every now and again. But for now, let, let me just say that I believe men, and sometimes supposedly Christian men, have at times twisted the Bible's teaching on men, women, and the relationship between them to exercise a kind of tyranny over women particularly within the marriage relationship. Something that's totally contrary to the heart and to the spirit of the gospel. For the Bible states clearly, states unequivocally, that between men and women there is a basic, fundamental, essential, and certainly spiritual 
equality. Famous verse, Galatians 2.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, and while there are men who are quick to take a verse like Ephesians 5.22 as their motto, probably more accurately, their war cry, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Yet what too often they fail to see is the verse that's not that much further forward, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, the husband is called to give of himself, to give of his rights, to give of his privileges in sacrificial love for the sake of of his wife. Now, did you get it? You see, the marriage relationship, the relationship between men and women, is supposed to be one where each one tries to outdo the other, not in taking for themselves, but in giving of themselves, not by dominating another, but by serving the other. Now, having said all of this, I do believe that men do have a leadership responsibility within the family and within the church but not because they are better than women, but because they are different to women and so are called to a different role and function. And all of this in order that there might be order and, and authority in society. All because of this. And it is interesting, and I think in my opinion it's no coincidence, that it says the traditional view and roles of men and women have by and large been rejected today. That so order in society, order and authority in our society has broken down. I think that's part of it. Having said all of this though, where does Deborah here fit in? Well, I believe in that although women were under male and particularly under their husband's authority, within the family and in the, in the worship setting in Old Testament times. Yet, in terms of life in society in general, that is, in, in business life, etc., etc., women were there, seemed to be, and were allowed to operate as the equal of men. With this being true of married women, provided they had their husband's agreement. And just read Proverbs 31, it's a great example of this. Now, I believe that Deborah's position as a judge of Israel comes under that umbrella. But even so, still, it's unusual. In fact, it's unique. In a society where men were dominant in so many areas of life. Unique for a woman to rise to a position of this kind of prominence. And that's why I want to concentrate this morning on Deborah the person, the outstanding person, rather than on Deborah the woman. But before we, we can really look at Deborah as a person, I believe we've first got to, to kind of set her within the context of the life and history of Israel, of our people. So we'll begin by, by looking at their situation. And their situation was that quite simply, again, as they do so again and again and again in Judges, that having been delivered by the Lord, by one of his servants sent by him, 
then remarkably quickly, they fall almost immediately right back into sin. And you would wonder, wouldn't you, how could that happen? How could that ever happen? That having got into a disastrous situation as the result of sin and then being so wonderfully rescued and redeemed by God that these people here could then put themselves so quickly back into precisely the same situation. You would wonder how it could happen except for the fact that daily we see this parallel. In our society, in life, even in our own lives, with the same kind of tragic, repetitive results. You see, what what happens, I believe, is that the devil presents sin to us as something glamorous, something fulfilling, something that's life-giving, liberating. And again and again, we fall for it. But while initially this might seem to be the case, yet the truth is that ultimately sin and all the different instruments of sin, they don't, as they seem to promise, liberate us. They don't enhance our lives. They don't make us more. They don't make life better. No, the exact opposite is actually the case. They enslave us and they bring destruction into our lives. As John 8.34 says, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And while this process is true, I believe, of life in general, yet it's certainly something that you can see particularly clearly in regard to to particular things like, say, drugs or, or drink. You see, people start off taking them so they can feel big, so they can feel independent, so they can feel grown up, so that they can enjoy life. They think at last they're going to be free, at last they're in control of their lives, and certainly they think that they're in control of these things. But you see, often it's not too far down the line, but the things that we once thought we were master of, actually, in fact, our master, and they're tearing our lives to pieces. You see it again and again, and that's the way it was for Israel. This people who'd been enslaved and then set free by God found themselves again lured and seduced by Satan into sin. And they found themselves again in chains. Verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Haggaiim. Because he had 900 chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now, now before we move on to Deborah, who I believe was the Lord's answer to this prayer, let me just finish what I'm saying here about context, about their situation, with just a word or two about these 900 chariots. Because, you see, it doesn't seem a lot to us, does it? You know, an outrage of nuclear weapons, 900 iron chariots, what's that? But you know, what we've got to realize is that at this time, at this point in history, these chariots were actually the ultimate in military technology. They were as good as it gets, and 900 of them. This was an incredible number, hinting, as these chariots would only form a small proportion of the total army, a mighty, mighty force of men. 
Now, when you take it into account that Israel had no chariots whatsoever, and therefore because of that, they'd be unable to defend their valleys and their plains. Indeed, they apparently had all their weapons taken off them by their conquerors, and because of that, were totally defenseless. Uh, sorry, chapter 5, 8 seems to suggest that, I believe. It says, when they, that is Israel, chose new gods, war came to the city gates. And not a shield or spear was seen among the 50,000 in Israel. Well, all in all then, humanly speaking, it seems as if their situation is hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. But then God steps in. Then God acts. And that's what we're going to look at now, move on to look at God's servant, Deborah. Now, I've already said a little bit about Deborah, this truly unique woman, who prior to this incident here was already acting as a a prophet, a prophetess, as God's voice to the nation, one of only three that we find in the entire Old Testament, and who here is, is chosen to be God's instrument to redeem his people. But let's now look at our life just in a little bit more detail. And first, I believe we we can see here, the first quality is that that she was realistic. Deborah was realistic. She was realistic about the situation of her people. And she was ready to do something about it. Now, you know, that's a surprisingly rare quality combination among the people of God. For an amazing number of people choose to be blind problem situations. They maybe like the perception, they like the the spiritual discernment to see them, or they choose to, to ignore these situations. They turn a blind eye to them, maybe because of the possible cost of facing up to them. And even when people do see problems, too often they're readier to talk about them. They're readier to moan about them. They're ready to gossip about them rather than actually try and do something about them. And John Gardner, an American politician who served in John Kennedy's cabinet, he actually made a very pertinent observation once regarding this. For what he said as a politician is that 20th century, it's no different than the 21st, 20th century institutions he said, are caught in a savage crossfire between uncritical lovers and unloving critics. But you see, as he points out, love without, love, sorry, without criticism, sorry, criticism, start again, love without criticism brings stagnation, but criticism without love brings stagnation destruction. You see, what rather instead is needed is a loving criticism. And how true that is today for the church. We need to be realistic. Yes, we do. We need to use our critical faculties. We need to see and to say what is wrong. But we need to make sure that as we do this and as we share this, that we do what the Bible says, that we speak the truth in love. And then we need to go on to do more than just to point the finger. We actually need to get down and to be ready to do something about the situation we see. 
We need to be ready to get involved, not just point the finger, but get our hands dirty. Deborah, though, was realistic. And she was not only realistic about the situation of her people, she was also realistic, I believe, about herself as well. For you see, called by God as she certainly was to to mobilize and direct her people, Deborah knew that in herself, she didn't have all the different skills and gifts that were necessary for this job in hand. And so, you see, she didn't hesitate to call on another. She didn't hesitate to call in Barak, who obviously was called because of what he'd already achieved. He was already a, a formidable military man. But what an asset, you see, that is. And what a mark of spirituality and of true humility. To be able to recognize our own gifts, but also our own limitations. And to be willing to see and recognize the gifts of others, and then to stand aside to let them exercise them. Now you see, that is the church working as it should, as a body as God intends, or at least it's the kind of self-understanding, it's the kind of heart attitude that enables that to happen. But again, I want to say to you, see it. It takes realism. Realism about ourselves and others. It takes self-giving, it takes real humility. Qualities that here were so much part of Deborah before this can take place, before we can work as the body as God wants us to, and before God's people can then flourish and grow. However, as well as being realistic, Deborah was also a motivator. She was a great, great motivator. A wonderful motivator. I mean, look at how she dealt here with Barak. Barak, a man who is a general was obviously a man of real physical courage. I mean, you didn't stand back as a general in Israel. You were there, fighting with your men. And yet, Barak, who here in this situation, and given the circumstances, it's at least surely understandable, who seemed to to find it in this situation, find it difficult to trust God. Who seemed to find it difficult to believe that God could or would, or perhaps even wanted to deliver them from this mighty enemy. Now, in life, in one way or another, to some degree or another, we'll all be faced by similar situations. Either it'll be we ourselves, or it'll be people, it'll be a group of people, a church, who are finding it hard to really trust God. Well, you know, the way that Deborah dealt with this here is really the classic way to go about it. Because notice, first, She challenged Barak. She challenged him, brought him face to face with God's command. Verse 6, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. You see, she began by letting him know that what she was asking, that this wasn't an option that he could choose, but this was a requirement of God. But then having done that, she then strengthened and encouraged him with the promise of God. For notice what verse 7 says. What the Lord says there, I will lure Caesar, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. 
You see, she didn't just challenge him, see that, to do what God had commanded. She didn't just say to him, get out there and attempt to do what he obviously saw as the impossible. No, she also reminded him that God himself would be with him. That he wasn't alone. That God would enable, God would empower him for what was a daunting task that lay ahead. You see it? Command and promise. Challenge and encouragement. We need them both if we're to do the work of God. Also here, Deborah comforted. She comforted with her presence. For a while she makes it obvious that that she would rather that Barak have a stronger faith and that he's going to miss out on something of a blessing because of his lack of faith. Yet still, she's willing to give him the comfort of her sheer physical presence. She's ready to do that. Now, we know that in the final analysis, this probably made very little obvious difference. For what difference could one person make in a major conflict like this? What could she add to what God had already promised to do and what his general Barak would be enabled to do? But you see, her presence did matter to Barak. It mattered to him. Maybe simply because he needed the comfort of somebody with him, a human company. Maybe he just simply needed the physical presence of somebody he trusted by his side at this time. Or perhaps it was because for him, Deborah in a way symbolized spiritually the Lord's presence with him. You know, we don't know precisely, but let me tell you. God made us as human beings. And he made us with a need for one another. Try and deny that. And you'll find yourself in big trouble spiritually, emotionally, and every other way. And underestimate what your presence means Perhaps to someone you know, someone who is in need. And you rob them of a precious resource of God. We need one another. God made us that way. So Deborah was a realist. She was a motivator. But great assets, though both these gifts were, they weren't the real secret of her life and of all that was achieved through her. No, Deborah's real secret was that she was also a woman of faith. A woman of great, great faith. Now that faith comes through again and again, especially in chapter 5 and the the beautiful song of Deborah. But it's also here, scattered throughout chapter 4. For example, in verse 14, in her final words of encouragement before battle to Barak, Deborah said there to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? That, you see, was Deborah's ultimate secret. And it's so important that we, that we take note of this. For you see, we can be true realists who see what needs done and attempt to do something about it. And we can be great motivators who are able to get alongside people and challenge and encourage them. Yes, so we can be Christian parents who want the best for our children. We can be elders and deacons and preachers and teachers. We can be servants of the Lord, ministering in the church and whatever sphere. People who are ready to give themselves unstintingly for God and for his people and for his world. And yet, 
if we don't ourselves have an active life of faith, if we don't have a living here and now personal relationship with God, with all else that we do, everything that we're involved in, springing out of that, then in proportion to our faith or lack of faith, our fruitfulness is always going to be so much less than it could be. Right up to the point of having the faith of a Barak. If you see, we need to be clear, we should not despise the faith of Barak, because certainly God didn't. In Hebrews 11, Barak is actually listed as one of the great faith heroes of Israel. And yet, because his faith was just a little less than that of a Deborah, well, so Barak, as we're going to see in a minute or two, so he missed out on the final touch of blessing, on the ultimate accolade of honor from the Lord. But first, all of this, though, maybe leaves us reeling a little bit. Feeling, you know, hey, wait a minute, all for the faith of Barak. Never mind a Deborah. How can I move from where I am? How can I see my faith at least begin to grow and develop? Well, I'll say what I've often said. I believe that the Bible's teaching on faith is that all of us are given an initial gift of faith. That's what enables us to respond to the gospel. And then that some are given a special gift of faith. And sometimes that's just for a, a certain occasion, a special gift for a particular occasion. But you know, what, what actually really matters and what we ultimately are responsible for is to exercise that faith that we have been given to the very utmost, whether it be a little bit or a big, massive gift or whatever. Because you see, it's as we do that, that then faith is like a muscle. Faith works like a muscle in that the more you exercise it, the more it grows. The more you do it, the more you grow. It's as we step out in faith, take that tiny first step and see God work, that then we're encouraged to do it again, to do it all the more. Those then are the main qualities that I see as part of the life of God's servant, Deborah. That she was a realist. She was a motivator. But above all, she was a woman of faith. A woman with a personal, living, mighty faith. But let's just finish by looking at God's solution. God's solution to this predicament his people find themselves in. And on the surface, it's quite simple. Barak with his men defeated Caesarea and his mighty armies. And then Barak was assassinated by a, a pagan woman, Jael, who he thought was an ally, but who obviously was not. And who took a, a moment, advantage of a moment of weakness in the one who ruled over her to put him to death in what really, again, is a particularly gruesome kind of fashion. It would put you off Euro camping for life. It certainly would. I'll never look at a tent peg in the same way. But although this seems simple, and it is, seems simple on the surface, yet I think the big questions remain. And that is, how was a miserable little army like the Israelites able here to defeat such a force? And also, what, what is the significance of the death of Caesarea at the hands of such a woman. Why did the Lord allow his death 
to take place in such a way? Well, I believe the answer to the first question actually lies in where the Lord directed His people to take on the enemy army. That is at a place near the Kishon River. For you see, this would seem really, I think, like a perfect place for Caesarea to attack Israel. Because during the dry season, which this was, then this exposed sun-baked riverbed, this would be the perfect surface for his chariots to charge across full pelt, full force, and rout the enemy. They'd be able to build up a fantastic momentum. But what in fact happened is, verse 22, 20, 22 of chapter 5 makes clear, what happened is that at just the right moment, for Israel anyway, a violent storm suddenly erupted out of nowhere that turned the Kishon totally unexpectedly, right out of season, into a raging torrent. And so you see, the ground there would soon become a quagmire. And these chariots, which once had seemed such an asset as they floundered about in the mud, became actually a liability. And it would seem that from this, that, that Caesarea's troops, as they saw their their greatest weapons suddenly stripped away from them, that they panicked, they broke ranks, and so they were routed and put to the sword. Now, some might want to say, well, you know, is that just another one of those unlikely stories that we find in the Bible? Well, it might interest you to know exactly the same thing as this happened in exactly the same place on the 16th of April, 1799, when Napoleon defeated the Turkish army. Exactly the same. So if that could happen then, then who dare say that exactly the same thing could not be engineered and brought about by the sovereign almighty hand of God? And as for Caesarea's death at the hands of Jael, why this death? Well, of course, there was actually a rebuke in this for Barak. As because of his slight lack of faith, this final honor was taken from him. But you know, I believe there's also a message in this for God's people as well. Because what the Lord was saying to them, and I believe saying to us, is listen, when you turned away from me, you found yourselves in a situation that you thought you could never get out of, that you thought you could never know the victory in. But look, I've set you free, I've delivered you, and I've done the impossible, and I've done it all by the hands of an insignificant, unbelieving woman. Look, how much more then do you think I can do if only you, my people, trust me? If only you walk with me. If only you seek me. If only you obey me. That, I believe, was the Lord's message to his people. But don't you think there's also a particular message for us as a people here in this story in Deborah's life? I certainly do. I believe there is. For as was the case for the people of Israel in the days of the judges, so today it is challenging. Living as the people of God in 21st century Scotland it is challenging. But you know, I believe it's also a time of tremendous opportunity. 
And I believe that we have great potential as a church. Maybe sometimes though the opportunities seem so many, the challenges are so great that we wonder, you know, what should we do? And however are we going to be able to do it? What I believe God wants us to do is first, like Deborah, he wants us to be realistic. As he wants us to be honest. He wants us to face up to where we are. And he wants us to assess the opportunities that are around us. And then he wants us to resolve to do something. You know, to do whatever best releases grace and love and faith into the church and then into our community. Building on this, God then, I believe, also wants us to be motivators. God wants us to challenge one another and to encourage one another. He wants us to get alongside one another when heads are down. He wants us to do that, that together as a body, we might be here in this place, the people God wants us to be. He wants us to be a people of faith who are ready to step out and put our trust in God in all that lies before us. But listen, just one more thing. To do that, you know, we need our Debras. We need not just men of faith, but women of faith. We need women who are ready to get involved and particularly to invest their gifts of leadership in the life of this church. We're soon, I believe, going to have deacons' elections. The door is open. We want you and we need you. It involves a cost and a commitment, something extra. I know it does, but listen, I'm going to tell you, if you stand and you're elected as a deacon, your husband will do the ironing and make the dinner when you're out. There you are. Believe that. That's Christian faith. If we all do this, though, who knows what the God who gave the victory to Deborah and Barak, who knows what the God who's won the victory in Jesus Christ. Who knows what he will do in us, for us, and through us. Let's pray together. Father, we come again just trusting in you, saying, Lord, we need the faith. Give us faith. Help us to grow in faith. Help us to walk forward in faith. Help us here in this place to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.